Now it's True Wealth presented by Little John Financial Services. Here is David Littlejohn with True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, that is that time of the week. It is the greatest Tuesday you've had all week, and it's time for the True Wealth Radio Show. I'm your host, David Littlejohn, joining me in studio today. Matt Dixon. All right, Matt. Yes. So the question on uh, everybody's mind now what? Yeah. We've been riding a little bit of a roller coaster, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Uh, if you have just watched, so today the markets went up, right? Now, uh, like when I say up, over 1.5%, that makes the S&P 500 now back to 44.71 and some pennies. Uh, the interesting thing about this one is year-to-date, still kind of all over the board, right? It's still down year-to-date, though, uh, a little over 6% just this year. So uh, wild rides, and, and it was higher, right? If we look back even just a few days ago on February 9th here, so about a week ago, it was uh, trading almost to 4,600, and then it fell all the way down to 4,400, and now back up. It got really bad back at the end of January and got down to 4,309 in the low point of the day. So that's another 100 points lower than that. So I'll take it. Mm-hmm. Right, I'll take and no, let's not even use points. It's just like a two, two and a half percent lower than it is right now. So we had a full blown like ten percent pullback from the high water mark of late December. It sure feels like the market's trying to decide where it wants to go. Like, yep. where do we want this price to fall? Yep. Well, what's interesting to me, if you were to just sort of draw squiggly lines and connect the ending price of every day, right? So just look at yesterday at the end of the day and then today at the end of the day and, and sort of draw a line going back the last few months. You'd have, first of all, a cleverly what we call a line chart. I realize that's very sophisticated. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, everything starting in January mostly went down until it looks like the low point on January 27th. And then it kind of shot back up about halfway fell down a little bit, and then it kind of went back up, fell down a little further, and now it's gone back up. And and what we oftentimes will call this is, we'll say the market is testing a diff different levels, right? So mm -hmm. uh, let's not talk about the stock market. Let's pretend that you there's something that many people are more familiar with. Let's talk about the real estate market, right? Oh, okay. There's buyers and sellers in real estate. Right, and we know that sometimes things seem more expensive or less expensive. As an example, hey, is it better to sell your house in the summer or the winter? Definitely in the summertime. Really? Why is that? There's a lot more people out there willing to buy. Okay, and so and there's, why do we think that is? I think part of it's the weather. It's literally true, like, right? It's warm outside, and I want a new home. And the I'm school, willing to actually school, move. School is out of session oftentimes, so families can move a little more easily. Do you really want to have to pack up your home in the middle of a rainstorm and move sure. all of your stuff? Like, right, it's but it's not just here in Oregon. It's fairly universal that the seasonality is that you often have a stronger sell season going from spring into summer. Well, and everything looks prettier in the springtime, right? Like when ever when all the flowers are in bloom and the house is super picturesque, it's like, ooh, I want that. But in the wintertime, when your house is covered in snow, it's a little bit harder to right. take pictures. And, and yet, sell that. do houses sell in the winter? Absolutely, absolutely, they do. And there are some people that try to sell their house in the summer and they can't. Mm -hmm. So, what happens is there are individual homes that will have their own unique market conditions and their own unique idiosyncrasies, right? 
That's a real word, by the way, for what we're talking about. It's the unique individual considerations for those homes. So you're saying a house up on the mountain next to the ski resort might actually sell better in the wintertime. True enough. But not just that. Like a house that has 12 bedrooms and 16 bathrooms and 10,000 square feet is not the same as a three-bedroom, two-bath place. You've got a little bit more of a niche market. Yeah. Yeah. So it's different markets for different reasons. So there and so idiosyncrasies again those are the unique differences of each position that's something important in the stock market too how are you tying that back in you'll see okay right? so but stick with me on the idea of what we just talked about with houses if do you really think the house is worth less in the winter time than it is in the summertime no no and yet if you were forced to sell in the wintertime, you may have to accept a lower price. I think I might start to see your angle here, David. Aha, right? So time horizon matters, and it's sort of the supply and demand, and demand can fluctuate with conditions or, in some cases, seasonality. Mm. Okay. What happens with real estate, though, is seldom do people consider real estate as a short-term investment. Now, there are people that buy and flip real estate. Right? Sure. They're, they're, they're short-term holders. They're going to do a quick rehab and try to sell it for a profit quickly. So I'm not saying that never happens. I'm saying the vast majority of people inherently view real estate with a longer-term time horizon in mind. You know, it's going to take some years to make your money back in real estate. And so the ups and downs of summers and winters don't tend to bother people as much. Okay. But now if we talk about the stock market, when I say the stock market is trying to discern value, like meaning how do we know what it's worth? Well, unlike your real estate examples here, where like, it's not like I can go to the newspaper or the internet and look up the value of my house and see it move second by second. Right, Zillow's can, tried to do that with their little Zestimate that they update every they, 15 they or have, 30 days. But, but even that, it's it still doesn't not update moment to moment to moment. It's not yep. taking a look at, well, how many people are on Zillow's website right now as potential buyers? And Looking what would they be willing to home. buy your home for? Right, There's not this open auction mm -hmm. where people are constantly bidding to either buy or sell right. your property all the time. So price discovery is slow. That's but true. the stock market price discovery is near instantaneous. You better believe that there's right. a computer willing to buy on behalf of a... Not only that, you have dealers that are willing to purchase from you and hold in their own inventory a position that they will then later turn around and sell to somebody else from their own inventory. So they're willing to play middleman. Mm -hmm. Right? So you've got... A lot more fluidity and a lot more price discovery. Uh, maybe not fluidity, liquidity, right? The hmm. ability to get in and out of the stock market. So you see the price all the time. Well, when you see it change all the time, it can really get you to start. It, it can it can literally like increase your anxiety levels. You like your your pulse can elevate watching this thing move. The emotions take over, and all of a sudden, it's a it's a stress event where oh my gosh, the market's all over the place. And you, you can almost talk yourself into bad ideas at times because you stop thinking about it as a long-term investment. Right? Yeah, it's, the moment my, has captured yeah. your attention. What is it worth 
today. Right. What is it worth right now if I was forced to sell? And that, I think, is the trap that we want to discuss today. Okay. Right? The, the trap of how does one look at the markets and get a sense of whether or not it's fairly valued? Okay. And we're going to talk about some of the considerations that go into that equation. Okay. And just so you're aware, I mean, here's the, you want a spoiler alert for the whole show? No. Right? <laughs> well, too bad. Oh. The spoiler alert is it's nuanced. The answer is the value is going to depend on some of the things that are specific to you as an investor, your idiosyncrasies. Mm. Okay. So, if you want to understand that term idiosyncrasy, remember that's the unique personal aspects that are only present in that specific instance and they're not present over the entire system, right? Some things all investors have in common, like largely all investors want to buy low and sell high, okay? But not all investors want to buy and sell on the same day at the same time for the same reason. Hmm. So there are both system-wide elements, and then there are unique personal elements to it. So what we will have is systemic conditions, or systemic uh, we'll, we'll call, uh, conditions, a fair one, right? But, we'll, but then we'll also have idiosyncratic. Okay, so we use this in terms of risk, but we can also use this in terms of decision or influence or elements for the buyer buying or selling whatever your reason is right there are systemic reasons and then there are idiosyncratic reasons so we're going right. to break both of those down for we'll look listeners. at all of them because as we talk through for our investors today this show i hope will help you to one discover price a little bit and then also come up with some strategies that as a do-it-yourself investor or somebody that may be working with a professional but wants to better understand how you're investing and why, we're going to unpack some of that. And then the hope is at the end of this show, you come back and say, you know what? I might be able to do some of this. Okay. Right? I think we could do this. But I like before it. we get into any more than that, we have to take our first obscene profit break for the station. Well, that so, happened fast. I know, right? My time flies when you're having fun, and that also will be relevant talking about investments. Ooh. But we got to take a break first. Stick around. We'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn and Matt Dixon, and you got True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. Hey gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Show. That was a quick timeout. Yeah, for it us. was. Uh, if you were just joining us today, we're talking about price discovery and how uh, the how the markets, stock markets, determine the price of things. So we're we're covering that. And if you want to get caught up, grab our podcast. It'll be available at littlejohnfs.com. And by now, you know if you're a podcast person, you know that uh, you, you know you subscribe to those things and you get the notifications when they're getting updated. So. Just go check it out on iTunes. Check it out. Uh, it's, we're on Amazon now, and there's a number of places. You go to Blueberry where we host it, and they'll get you set up too. So all your favorite places to find podcasts, check out the True Wealth Show. And then tell your friends, right? So, Matt, how do we figure out the value of investments? Well, I think one of the things that we might have to do is look at other investments that are in the same arena. Okay, I like it. So this is a birds of a feather mm -hmm. idea, right? Yeah. Uh, 
what are some other things that we would consider? Like, what do you think? I mean, there's a really simple one. Ultimately, what makes what determines the price of anything? Good old fashioned supply and demand. Right? It's like, hey, whether or not someone's willing to sell it and somebody else is willing to pay for it. Do you it. want to buy my iPhone for ten thousand dollars? I don't. Oh. Well, but I'll does offer anyone? you ten bucks for it. Yeah. Uh, yeah there well, you go. anyone be, it said it turns out if it was Michael Jordan's iPhone. Maybe someone would probably pay the right, ten thousand dollars. Right now, all of a sudden, it sounds different. It's like, was well, it autographed? Oh, ten thousand bucks might be a bargain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, it's interesting. Supply and demand determine the price. But if we don't have some unique idiosyncratic right, Ooh, variable, define that for our listeners, David. Right. If you, big well, words. You know, I think I, there that was sort of kind of a redundant term. Unique and idiosyncratic sort of mean the same thing in this. Scenario. I know someone's out there like flipping through the dictionary. Like I'm gonna get there real quick. Exactly. Hold on, David. Pause. So it's out there. Uh, anyway, if if it, it absent those special differentiating factors, mm -hmm. then you start to look at well, what are the other price? What are, what are other things being priced at? Right. So. I want to go back to our housing example again. Okay. And again, we use that because it's really familiar, right? Most people, you, you have to have a place to live. Whether you're buying or renting or you paid for something outright a long time ago, there are some fairly established ways to figure out what property is worth, right? Sure. I mean, if I just wanted to say, anybody want to buy my house for $25 million? Pretty sure the answer is no. No sensible person would do that. Mm -hmm. Right now, if you're an unsensible person that wants to buy my house for $25 million, see me after class. Well, maybe if your neighbor sells his house for $25 million, then you can sell yours for $25 million. Right. I mean, maybe underneath my house uh, is a gold mine with you know hundreds of millions of dollars of gold, and now it's worth it because it comes with the mineral rights. Mm. I don't know. But you get the idea that no sane person would typically go out and do this. But again, if you're insane and want to pay me $25 million for my home, I can be bought. <laughs> just saying that on air, it's... I can be bought. So, <laughs> uh, and I'll just tell my wife, look, for $25 million, you know what we're going to do? We're going to move. Yep. <laughs> like We love our neighbors. We'll come back and visit. Um, meanwhile, in reality land, we can look at some of the standard things involved in property, right? It is... Price per square foot. Yeah, that's a great one. Price per square foot is a, a really common way to assess whether uh, houses are similar to each other. Mm -hmm. You know, how big are they, and how much do they cost, and what's the price per square foot breakdown? Okay. Now, it's not always a perfectly linear comparison, right? No, because if you have a pool, your price per square foot probably is a little bit higher than your neighbor who doesn't right. have a pool, or if you have a, a larger lot that your home sits yep. on, right? Maybe you have a more attractive outside scenario, like you've sure. got more land that comes with it. Uh, also, the location really does matter. You know, if you're Absolutely. way out in the country where there's lots of land and not lots of people versus being closer to cities and infrastructure where more people want to be there, then the demand could be higher, which could change the price. Mm-hmm. But it's still a great starting starting point. So we know what's the you know the cost of the dirt underneath it, underneath the home, right? What's the what's the type of raw material, right? Does the home have foundation problems? Yeah, does it have problems? Mm -hmm. But you know, how does it have? Is it in good shape or not, right? Does it need a new roof or not? These are 
predictable elements that would affect the price. Hey, if I have to put a new roof on it, I'm not going to pay as much because I have to save some money to put a new roof on. Mm-hmm. What about the interior accoutrements? How is it trimmed out? What kind of flooring does it have? Is it hardwood or is it worn out carpet? What kind of countertops, right? Is it a laminate countertop or some kind of stone or solid surface? Right? These are all different elements that get baked into the pie when determining the value of a home. And most of us are more familiar with this in concept because it makes sense, right? You can walk into Home Depot and see what they charge for a countertop. Mm-hmm. But we might not necessarily look at a stock in the same way. I agree. Like, oh, that company is swimming in debt. Yeah. Ma- How do you know if a company is valuable? Like, let's talk about Google as an example. And I'm pulling this one out of a hat. Now, let's talk about Nike as an example. Okay. Right? That's an Oregon-based company. Okay. Right? So if we talk about Nike, what's Nike worth as a company? Yeah. And, it's... you know, there are lots of things to consider, right? One of the things we could do is we could add up all the stuff that Nike owns. Mm-hmm. Right? Everything from things that we would consider semi-intangible, like patents. Right? Hey, the Nike, Nike has, they've developed their own custom fabrics. The logo. The logo itself is worth a lot of money. Well, and it's worth something because Nike itself is a company. You know, it's, it. it's that branding yeah. power. So it's got some brand identity and all of the dollars that have gone into building the brand identity. Mm-hmm. So you could try to say there's a some kind of value. That's kind of intangible. Again, mm-hmm. like how do you say the, you know, the brand identity is worth this much? Well, I don't know, but we know it's strong and we know people buy it because there's a swoosh on it. Yep. So there, there's something to it. That investment has paid off in some form or fashion. So what else could we look at? And they, they, Nike has stores, mm-hmm. right? And they have buildings. So Nike owns real estate. That's they in do. the equation. They own equipment, they and manufacturing. and own a lot of contracts with big companies. Well, they do. They have uh, deals with different athletes yep. and endorsements and so forth. So there's marketing and advertising budget in there. But at the end of the day, Nike sells athletic apparel. Yep. Primarily. I mean, they, I guess they have you know golf clubs and athletic apparel and... Equipment. Equipment. Sure. Right? And somebody out there is going to say, well, don't they own Kohan and some other luxury brands? Like, okay, so they've got... They sell apparel and athletic equipment. Mm-hmm. Okay? And if you start to get into like, well, what about cufflinks and stuff? I'm going to smack you. I will tell you what. <laughs> right? You just, you just stop it. Right? Verbal smackdown. That's what I'm talking about. All right. It's the keyboard warrior in them. Like, just tell you, you. It never ends. Nike's got a big, diverse business model, and stop it with your you know, abusive fact-checking. <laughs> the, the point is, how are we going to value this company? And you know what? In the end of it all, what how much are you willing, willing to, pay to pay for it, for it? and yep. what's somebody else willing to sell it for? I mean, I think Tesla's a good example of what are you willing to pay for it because... Right, and so we come up with different ways to rationalize things. Tesla's very interesting to me because I have, I, I don't think I've ever trashed Tesla the company as in like it's a bad company. I think what right. I said is it's an uninvestable company to me. Right. And yet, people would disagree, and there have been people that made a lot of money on Tesla. And here's the crazy thing: a year or so ago, on air, I would say, "Golly, you know, Tesla, they have a PE ratio of." You know, north of six hundred, but it's changing. It's the, the, the well, companies they were losing money, right? Yeah. They're spending investor money and they're losing money like crazy. Right now, they're 
Now, they still have a bunch of debt, mm-hmm. right? And and you could also make the case that without government incentives, they don't, it doesn't look so good, right? Without government incentives- If you take the EV credits away, you mean? You take away the credits, you take away the fact that the government has helped really supplement the distribution of the charging stations all over the country. Right. Okay. So if you took away the government incentives, Tesla's a different country, company, but I don't have to take those away because they've got them right now. Yep. So I can look at this and say, well, now Tesla spends a bunch of money- but they actually make a bunch of money too. They have big revenue, and that's and now a they change have profits. too. That's a change, wouldn't you say? It like is. If we look at so the price to earnings ratio. Now they have earnings, so it's not zero. They don't have zero earnings or negative earnings. They have earnings, mm-hmm. which means their, their price to earnings ratio over the last few years has gone from at one point I think it was twelve hundred, and now it's at about one hundred and sixty something mm-hmm. when we looked at it today. So the company is starting to be profitable to investors and it's starting to come into alignment with its ability to earn revenue now again if the if the government pulled away the government cheese right <laughs> all those other programs they'd have a real problem but, but as it stands I, at the moment right well and not only that as it stands at the moment but this big environmentalist push mm-hmm. that you know tesla sort of in ground central right they've they're in the spot in where, favor. hey, you know, we address this problem. Whether or not they, I, I'm not here to say whether or not they are addressing it correctly, because mm-hmm. I'll be the first to come on the radio and say, look, electric vehicles, okay, yeah, that's novel that it's not fossil fuels, but don't try to convince me that there's not tremendous energy input that goes into building a Tesla and volatile chemicals and all kinds of other issues that come with the batteries that do wear out, and then what do you do with them, right? I mean, there's, yeah. there is still a lot of energy costs associated with building a Tesla. So, you know, let's not, uh, you know, pat ourselves on the back with one hand while we're, you know, digging a ditch with the other or whatever the stupid analogy is there. But you get the idea. Oh, right? yeah. Like, let's not. Um, the cobalt mining's a thing. Like, yeah, it's, a thing. it's like, it's a thing. let's not ignore that part. Yeah. Let's not ignore that we're just, uh, ignore, we, we can look the other way on some environmental problems because we feel warm and fuzzy about it, a different one that we think we're solving. Right? Kind of reminds me of like the black diamonds down in Africa, right? Like everyone's like, ooh, you know, diamonds, that's, we're really supporting a bad cause here, but. Yeah, the conflict diamonds. Yeah. Concept, yeah. Now it's like, well, those same people are now digging cobalt for you. And so. Right. Yeah. So we're we're we'll just don't worry we'll throw rocks at everybody yeah uh, but the point is from a investment perspective we can look at Tesla as an example of a company that's now making money and so if you're putting a dollar into an investment in Tesla there is now at least the idea that the company is profiting and you expect to get paid back for the dollar you put in mm-hmm. so your risk and reward metrics are starting to change okay now with Nike how do we figure it out we talked about. There's real estate, there's equipment, there's blue sky. Blue sky is the intangible stuff, like the brand recognition. And uh, they've got you know, celebrity endorsements. And as long as the celebrities don't do something that takes them out of favor, which we live in a weird world right now in cancel culture where that could blow up, uh, you know, Nike's not without risks, but they've also they've got a lot of things going for them. So how do you figure out the value? And you say, well, I add up all the stuff, I divide it by the number of outstanding shares, and there's kind of my price per share. And we would call that a book value. Mm-hmm. Now, but the book value may not that reflect does, what yeah, the market believes. Exactly. Is. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's typical that companies sell for 
more than book value. Or less. I mean, it can. Yeah. They can sell for less than book value. more. Typically, when they sell for less than book value, we consider them a riskier company. Mm-hmm. Right? You're like, well, what's wrong where your, your stock is valued at less than all your stuff? What yeah. are you doing wrong? <laughs> if you're running a great business, then your intangibles should produce value above and beyond the stuff that you own. It's People not just should having the stuff, it's the, the business price. produces yeah. at revenue. So I think that the market is, it, it's this instantaneous voting mechanism, and it's trying to figure, now here's the trick. Do you need to know how to figure all of this out? Like, Do you need to know all the different pricing, re, pricing models to, to discover the price of a stock? Not necessarily, but... I'm going to argue that you're going to need to know more than you might think you need yeah, to know. I think that you're going to know, you want to know some things, right? You certainly need to know what your budget is and your time horizon and some other elements. But but do you need to know all the pricing formulas? I'm going to give you a cheater's idea. It's not really a cheat, but I'm going to tell you that there's a shortcut, okay? But Are you, you going to teach them on air? I'm going to talk about the shortcut but I'm going to make you wait until after this next oh, obscene profit Oh, that's break. dirty, David. I know, right? we got to get him to stick around. That's called a teaser for mm. the next clip, right? Because we are professional broadcasters here. All right, stick around. We'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. Welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. This is Dave Littlejohn in studio with... Matt Dixon. All right, Matt. Yes. So, how do we know the price of a stock? Well, first, you get a crystal ball. And you start rubbing it, and you look into it, and then and boom. You log into Google Finance. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, that, it was a tricky question because the price is easy, right? Yeah. How do you know... How do you discover price? I feel like... Yeah, like you said, you go to Google Finance, you find out what it's trading for. That's the price. Yeah, I, this is the shortcut. I will tell you that how do analysts discover price? They have pricing models. Okay, mm-hmm. so they have pricing models where what they're looking at is all kinds of different data, and the pricing models are going to be unique to the analysts. Right, different investment firms and investment analysts develop their own custom predictive pricing models to try to discern where prices are going to go. So they're trying to develop like an price expectation. Targets. Yeah, those price targets mm-hmm. typically come from, uh, it's an equation, right? No. So a model is the, an equation where they're taking different variables and then they are sort of ranking them, weighting them, and putting them into a formula to have it grind out a number. Almost like a Monte Carlo simulation. Like it can uh, well, go... so... In a yeah, sense. Not to throw you under the bus, but not like... Like Monte Carlo is a testing mechanism where you run simulations right. of randomized variable outputs and then you plot those to get sort of a distribution right. and that's a predictive model from a statistical perspective. But this is kind of like that in the sense that they're running a bunch of different situations to try and determine where that price could go. So the pricing model is more simple than that. Let's say that your pricing model was as easy as the price to earnings ratio. Okay. Okay. So your price to earnings is we think that if the company has this much earnings, 
and this is the multiple on it that that should be the price. So let's say a company's worth $10 a share, we think it's gonna earn a dollar, then its PE ratio is 10. We think it's gonna grow by 20%. So it's gonna go to $1.20, that $10 oh. should become okay. 12. That's a really so a lot super more simple yeah. pricing model. But it gets more sophisticated when you start to say, well, if this area of the business grows, but this one doesn't, now we have different ratios involved and they sort of project out. And then you can say, and compared to the peer perform. So here's all the other industry, uh, just like looking at other houses in the area and prosper square foot, right? Okay. Now you start to say, well, let me look at the other players in the industry, get a sense of where they're going. What are, what are their numbers look like? We can use comparative assumptions here. If we were hit these comparative assumptions, it models out at this other price. So this means this price should move to here. Gotcha. Right? So. It's developing these pricing models by comparing other variables. Again, it's sort of like an appraisal hmm. on a house, right? Where you're gonna say, well, here's sure. the different ways that we compare them to get there. And we're going and if there are isn't a comparison, then we're gonna build some uh, assumptions in. And and we're gonna make a math equation to spit out an output. And they call it a model. Right, and then that messes with us because as as the layman out there, you would look at this and go, "I don't know what you're talking about." Right? If I called it a pricing blueprint, maybe it would make more sense. Because right? a blueprint, you're like, "Oh, well, that's instructions." So yeah, if you showed me the different math instructions, if I said, "Well, let me create a story problem for you, and I'll give you all the different variables that are things like how much is the company going to earn, how many employees does it have, how much debt does it have, how what are its sales going to be, what are sales for the number of stores, how many new stores will it open?" You know, and you could say, "Oh, well, it's just a big story problem, and I'm going to generate a number at the end, and that's the prediction of where the price is going to go." That's actually a pricing model. Yeah. Right? Okay. So lots of different analysts come up with these different methods to do this. And all you as an investor have to do is spend countless hours developing your own customized predictive pricing model, right? Ouch, that sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, wrong. I like numbers, but that even sounds terrible to me. <laughs> it's that's not what typically happens. So it turns out there are some pricing theories to the stock market that are really interesting to me. I don't know that they're fully compelling, but we're gonna talk about this a little. Something called the efficient market hypothesis. Mm. Okay, have you heard of this? Yes, and I'm I'm seeing terms like strong and weak floating around. Strong out there. and weak are part of it. It's this is something, by the way, that you get a little yeah. flavor of this in when the you... testing protocol to become mm -hmm. a an advisor, right? Yep. So the can you give just a basic overview of the efficient market hypothesis? Mm, like in layman's terms? Yes. Basically that the price gets um marked into things on its own, yeah. right? So like if if something happens right now in real time, it's going to price itself in because someone knows about it and someone's trading on that. Right. Knowledge. It's the idea that everything's baked into the cake already. Like the price of the stock reflects, or the price of the investment, let's say, yeah. reflects all known no knowledge. knowledge. Yeah, right? there. It's yeah. in there. It's already knows. And so you don't necessarily have to be an expert. You just need to know, well, I'm buying. All the stuff's already baked into it. This is particularly important for today. And I'll come back to that in a second. Okay. But if that's the 
the theory and the strong theory is really rigid about it. it says everything is known by the price of the stock it has already discovered everything that will be known and the only reason the stock price would change is because new information has been mm -hmm. presented that's a really good way to say it okay and that's the strong form now i don't personally agree with this Okay. Now, the, the real hardcore academians will say, well, if you look over a 110-year period and blah, 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 like they'll, they'll start to push really long time frames, and they will say, eventually, the variability in the stock market sort of gets washed out with a long enough time horizon, and it, it will demonstrate that the markets are extremely efficient. Now, being extremely efficient is not the same as being efficient, right? Being right. efficient is as if you said, it works exactly like this. Being extremely efficient still means there's a slight bit of inefficient in there, right? Mm -hmm. Extremely efficient, but isn't fully efficient. Okay. <laughs> so what are things that maybe the market doesn't know about? Uh, policy changes that are happening behind closed doors. Okay, yeah. So there are things that are going on that are inside information. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we are, that's, you're not supposed to be able to trade on that, right? Remember Martha Stewart went to jail for that for a little while. Yeah, I, I feel like there's air quotes. <laughs> yes, inside yeah. information. Uh, and yet, amazingly, some of our politicians come into office with fairly, you know, pedestrian salaries mm -hmm. and they become multimillionaires. And you wonder, how did, how did that work out? Yeah, I so, mean, that's been in the news a lot lately. Certain politicians and their amazing stock returns, it's like, did you have some information that no one else did? Well, and who knows? But I yep. know our listeners are all going, <clears throat> and we all get it, right? Yeah. So the, the trick there is, back to the efficient market hypothesis, does the market know everything? Or does it know a lot? It knows least? a lot, but probably not everything. I because... think it knows a lot, but I have trouble believing that the markets yeah. are truly efficient because... Of like like what was the acquisition that Intel just announced? Like oh, just a few minutes ago. Yeah, they bought another chip company, and then that chip company shot up forty five one percent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In after hours trading, mm -hmm. the stock jumps forty one percent, and I I look at somebody and go, you mean to tell me that the price of a company can spike forty one percent in seconds, and that that's efficient? Right. And like, then people say, well, you know, technically it wasn't known in the, the stock before, and now it's known and it's priced in. And I'll go, so you're saying that it becomes efficient again? My, my, my premise here is that these big gaps in price suggest that uh, it's not, efficiency is not orderly, yeah. right? And so maybe, uh, maybe that's my hang up, is that you know, the, an efficient market does not imply an orderly market. There can be very violent price relocations uh, if, if that were still to be true. I think that there's probably I, I prescribe to more of what we call the weak form of efficient markets, which is it's pretty efficient. Most of what is known is reflected in the price, but what's not known is where where's the, where are things headed, right? It prices up to this moment, but why would you invest at all if everything's already in the price? And it's because well, I don't know what the future is. So now you can look at it and say. Well, where do I expect things to go into the future? And that's essentially what we're investing in is that brighter days are coming. Yeah. Right? How how does how's that for a sunshine show? Like how do you 
you know, the end of the day, we 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 say, what are we going to call this podcast? And we say, well, we call it discovering the value of stocks and why there's always a silver lining, right? Yeah. Because you have to look to the future and and be optimistic about this. That or you have to be. Uh, willing to short the market, You're like, well, you know what? It's this is as good as it's ever going to be. It's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm going to profit on it, mm. which was basically the premise of the Big Short, right? Yeah, like there's oh, the movie. <laughs> the whole the whole market's going to crash. Well, you know what we could do is we can make a slaying on this thing if we do this. I wonder how many people watched that movie, got inspired, and they're like, I'm going to do the same thing. I don't know the the conditions at play are very different. Yeah, and what I can tell you is. There are some things that th this is very relevant, by the way. In the efficient market hypothesis, probably uh, not a bad idea to stick with that as an individual investor. I'm not offering investment advice right now, but I am going to offer sort of a reality check that institutions oftentimes do have access mm -hmm. to non public information. Oh, yeah. And uh, institutions also have access to technology. That can able can give them a mechanical advantage over the small investor. Now, sometimes that can work to your benefit, right? I, I I liken this to imagine if you're on a surfboard and a giant wave comes through and crashes next to you and makes another wave that you can ride. Okay, well maybe you're all right, but if you are just on in the way of that big wave and it crashes on you, you got a problem, right? Because institutions can just plow right over you, yeah. or Sometimes you can get lucky and you can get out onto the, the edges of it and stay out of the, the fray and the mess and still take advantage of it. But it's really hard to compete against institutions. On mm -hmm. the flip side, the small investor may have tactical advantages at times, too, because you can move smaller blocks of money. Right? And you can move. Well, well, I don't know if faster is the right term. You but can, well, fast enough, because here's the thing. How are you going to move ten billion dollars without that, anybody that's noticing? That's where I was trying to go with that. Yeah, it's right. like yeah, I can move a thousand dollars a lot faster than you can move. You 10 can move a million dollars, and it's just caught up in that's just froth in mm -hmm. this market. In most stock, I mean, there are some small stocks where a million dollars is going to change that price a lot, and you want to be careful with that. You don't want to be an accidental market maker, right? Then we got other shows in the past about that, but you can move a lot of money in an instant at a retail level and the markets don't notice a whole lot but when you start moving big blocks of billions of dollars at a time tough to hide that mm. right there they'll see you do it as they say so the rules do look different right i mean warren buffett plays by different rules than i do now his principles may be really similar but his tactics get to be different and he will also have access to different information, sometimes policy and other things that, you know, he's being, uh, he's being fed a lot more. Than well, you he's are. being consulted at times. Hey, yeah. what do you think about this? And he'd say, well, I think here's some of the issues, and this is what I mean, he can actually influence policy in some scenarios because he's probably I don't know, but he's probably contributing to support campaigns through, you know, some company here, there, or otherwise. Right. So, you know, at the end of the day. Follow the money. These super wealthy people, you know, they may not be um, wholly um, malevolent, but they're not wholly benevolent either, mm. right? Anyway, well, look, we're running long. Let's grab our last break of the day. We'll okay. uh, come back here and we'll talk final thoughts on how might you as an investor package all of this new knowledge together about price 
for better discovery yourselves. That and more when we come back. This is Dave Littlejohn and Matt Dixon. Yeah, True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. Hey, gang, thanks for joining us on the home stretch of the True Wealth Show. Dave Littlejohn in studio with some guy you pulled in off the streets. That happens every week. Thanks, yep. Matt. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, uh, grab the podcast to get caught up. We're talking price discovery, and we got a few final thoughts for you as an investor. Okay. First, keep in mind that uh, when we talked about the efficient market hypothesis, whether or not you buy it, I don't care. But the price is the price is the price. What you see is what's happening right now. And so either the market, all the all that's known about the price is in there or it's not. But whatever the case, we still can't predict the future. We cannot. Right? So I'm working on it though. Yeah, we are working on it. There are things that we can do that are predictive indicators, mm-hmm. right? And we can certainly look at those to try to discern and give an indication of what the future may be. But this is why I think tactics still play a role as investors, right? Uh, so one of the things you can do is risk management tactics, okay? If you are wrong, then how do you manage risk? There yeah. are some simple ones, right? Like, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. Remember I promised I'd bring it back? What was my favorite word earlier? Oh, idiosyncratic idiosyncratic right? that's right remember so diversification the don't put all your eggs in one basket conversation is about managing idiosyncratic risk right mm-hmm. the risk of individual investments having something go wrong i i guessed at the future and i guessed wrong so and being diversified can help because mm-hmm. you've got more guesses you're less likely to have an all or nothing experience where it's the nothing yeah and you need to be able to do something about it if you do see something go wrong. Right. So when we talk about tactics, some of the things to consider are the size of the position, right? Do you just how many positions? That's diversification at a basic level. How many do I own? How similar are those positions? That's a correlation conversation. Yep. And then we talk about allocation, meaning what weightings do I put? How much do I own of the different things, right? If I own, if I have $100 and I own uh, 10 stocks, a dollar in nine of them, and $90 in the other one, I'm not very diversified. No. Right? I'm still heavily, heavily weighted to one position. So w- the allocation also matters. And this is something that I think people oftentimes forget. You don't have to buy everything all at once. You can spread out your purchase, right? If you've got some money, you can, like, cost averaging buy a little every month or if you've got a big chunk and you're you're transitioning from one strategy to another you don't if you're very convicted you can just plunk all the money in and if you're right you make the most money right the sooner you get into the markets when you're right the better off you are but it's not a risk management strategy if the markets go down so you can put some money in and then add more to your positions if it continues to decline and you still like the position you can also take from positions that are performing very well and reallocate to other spots in the market. Yeah. And so I think that's the part of money management that's often missed is the tactics really do influence how much risk you're owning at different points. Right? It's it doesn't have to be set it and forget it. It doesn't have to be overtuning, right? You know, some people are always twisting a wrench on their engine to make it run better and they may not really produce a better running engine. It just produces a lot more effort. 
Okay, well, I'm not interested in effort for the sake of effort. I'm interested in effort for the sake of results. Yeah, yes, that right there. Okay, so we want the results. So it's about not just working, but working right, working smart. And we want our investments to work smart for us. Okay, so consider the tactics in that. And, uh, you know, for what it's worth, you're only going to get so deep into any radio show. Uh, it'd be different maybe if we could show you stuff online and whatnot. But the idea here is. At the end of the day, the, the market's going to discover the price for you. If you want to build predictive models, you can try to get a sense of where the markets may be headed. You can use that as a mechanism to try to choose whether or not to buy something. And your conviction level can tell you how aggressive you want to bet on that position, right? If you're just convinced that it's going higher, then you can put heavier weightings to that. You know, Warren Buffett, one of my favorite uh, people to quote, said, diversification is protection from ignorance. Right. I mean, if you are otherwise ignorant, diversification and buying a broad based index works really well. But if you were doing your homework and have strong convictions, you can take more concentrated positions in those if it matches your conviction. And again, this is one of these invest investment involves risk. I'm not telling you what to do and I'm not offering you investment advice, but I am yeah. telling you that if you have high levels of conviction, that can lead to higher returns if you are correct. If you are not, hey, choose your own adventure, right? But that's what money management's all about, okay? So anyway, that's the fun stuff. And if this is just making your head spin and you're like, oh, I don't want to do this at all, then you know, phone a friend, right? You bring in a ringer for you. What's a what's a friendly phone number that these people can call? David? Well, you tell me, Matt. You better know it by now. I'm gonna get it tattooed, so I don't even have to think about it. But it's five four one three seven five zero eight nine eight. All right, gang. So that is that's our firm at Little John Financial, and we're happy to uh, give you a hand there if you are uh, looking to fine tune your investments, manage risk, uh, or otherwise get a co-pilot. We can help. Uh, so again, that number five four one five eight sorry five four one three seven five zero eight nine. Looks like you're the one that needs the tattoo, David. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> but we're out of time for now. So until next time, uh, this has been David Littlejohn and Matt Dixon, and you've been listening to True Wealth on News Radio twelve forty KQEN. The preceding program was paid for by Littlejohn Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.